And welcome everyone to a brand new episode of the Pro Rest Paradise here. EW Torch VIP. I am, of course, as always, your host, Alan Forel, rounding out the month of February with our 34L30 episode. Yes, it wouldn't be another month getting completed without another 34. No, not 34L30. I'm getting my gimmicks confused here. Oh my. <laughs> I was thinking, I don't remember watching something for 34L30. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, you've been assigned Kona Crush. <laughs> you, you, you think you could do two hours of Kona Crush, Brian Adams talk? Uh, um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> if anyone could, yourself and your uh, Days of Thunder co-hosts, Dave Ryan, could. I, I, could I've seen many a Brian Adams match, but that doesn't mean I've liked and remembered many a Brian Adams match. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, we will have a Brian Adams uh mention on this show that I'm going to hit you with later, Lee, but um, that's why he was in my head. But uh, this isn't 34L30, but that is Lee Malone, my guest here, as I do things back to front now. Lee, you are my guest. It is great to have you back on here. First time since I believe we talked about Paul Orndorff um, a couple of years ago uh, after his uh, unfortunate passing. Um, and now I have you on uh, after Ole Anderson's uh, unfortunate passing. So if Lee's coming on Pro Wrestling Paradise, you know a Georgia wrestling legend is about to uh, <laughs> beat their demise. I it's funny you say that. I actually texted Dave last night. I was like, um, do people die after I talk badly about them on podcasts? Because, you know, I'm starting to get that feeling. Because <laughs> we just watched Clash 10, where Oli kicks Sting out of Horseman. Um, and I was not a fan it's of that promo. you time. Yeah. I, I bought you a little time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did not enjoy that segment. And I went hard on Oli. And, uh, really? And, yeah. I, I, that's a, that's a, a personal favorite for l segment, I got to say. Uh, look, the, the segment I get, but like, oh, I just wasn't a fan of Oli taking center stage. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, hopefully the next time I'm on, somebody has not died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the guys from the Georgia territory all get very nervous when they see you on Pro Rest Paradise. But you you aren't here to talk Oli with me. Um, Oli does not appear on either of the shows we are going to talk about. You are here for what's on telly, Lee. Um, we are going to uh, do our monthly What's on the Telly episode. For those not familiar, it's a pretty simple concept. Lee picks a show from this month in pro wrestling history. A TV show has to be something that aired on television. And I do the same. And we talk about our shows. We compare some notes. We uh, yeah, just uh, run them down. What worked, what didn't work. Have a bit of banter. Get on out of here. It'll be a good time. And uh, yeah, Lee... Um, the 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 options are such that you can pick anything from any year, any promotion, any part of the world, as long as it happened in or around when we're recording this podcast. So we'll say for for the purpose of simplicity, anything from a February in pro wrestling history, you went to a year I know you love and I do too. We are both in the in the prime of our teens, Lee. In the year 2000, and what show did you pick, and why did you pick it? So, I, I, before I even get to my pick, I just want to say, like, being the time that we're recording, I really didn't want to pick anything by 
the WWEWF. I'm just sick of talking and thinking about that company. Um, WCW, on the other hand, I will talk about all day, but I I looked and I was searching, and obviously I'm limited to 1999 and back because, you know, we, we have Days of Thunder where we go chronologically through the show, so I don't skip ahead. Um, as If I can prevent it, I will not watch anything ahead of our timeline. So I was limited on what WCW I would choose. So instead, I went for some ECW on TNN, the much maligned ECW on TNN, I feel. Um, episode number 26, which was taped on the 5th of February and broadcast on the 18th of February 2000. And I was delighted to uh, be served up this pick from you, Lee. It was, it's our first ECW on TNN episode um, as part of the project. We we did an ECW show, I think, maybe last January, um, uh, but it was a hardcore TV. So it would have been, um, it was 1999, so it would have been before they went on, on TNN. And like I have seen bits and pieces of ECW on TNN shows. I've probably watched a handful of shows kind of from start to finish. So the overall package is something I'm not like super closely familiar with. It's not something I've ever done a big rewatch project on or um, so. Yeah, I, I was just fascinated by how it would all kind of come across from a presentation point of view, like trying to put myself in the, in the headspace of someone in 2000 watching TV and and a, a wrestling fan and this coming on, like what boxes does it tick? What boxes does it not tick? And uh, yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. It's kind of not, in some ways, it's more polished than I'd expect it to be. And there's like a noticeable, because like we reviewed an ECW show from 95 in um in november myself and and jesse collings and Mm. that was a hardcore tv and obviously it's five years earlier things of there's an evolution there for sure but just that show was so grimy and not in a bad way but like just grimy and, and rough around the edges and I think probably compared to like a raw or a nitro at the time, this probably felt a bit rough around the edges in some ways, but I don't know, to me looking at it, having a much larger span of different types of wrestling TV from all different eras at this point, when I watched this, I, I don't know. I just thought there was more of a polish to this than I would have, than I would have expected. And I thought it was, it was a a pretty you could tell that this was a network product and we'll talk the network in in a moment but you can tell this was a network product as opposed to something being done in like uh Paulie's uh was it the the Charlie Charlie Buffone I think was the guy's name the editor the, the, and the, the, the editor and director in they Paulie's do it basement in his, yeah his parents basement yeah. and they just really it was a real DIY type thing this felt more like, okay, it had a television company and production behind this. And, and I knew it had all that from listening to things like the great, I would be remiss if we didn't plug it during the course of this conversation, the great between the sheets, um, ECW on TNN series that they did on their Patreon, where they get into every 
nook and cranny of of this run um and in the the arguments uh that were pretty much there from the beginning between ECW and the network it wasn't a it wasn't a good relationship and but uh, like in spite of the things that I think ECW had very um valid uh criticisms over with how TNN treated them I think they have I think you have to acknowledge that if you were looking for the ECW product to have a bit more sheen to it and a bit more of a professional uh, setup um, for 2000, uh, I think TNN gave it to them. Yeah, this was a, I thought it was a a well-produced television show for, for the most part for by 2000 standards. Like I I feel like that the show gets a lot of, like it gets a lot of crap for, um, you know, how how ECW was treated by TNN and how, you know, ECW treated TNN back <laughs> as well. Um, but I feel like the show really, I thought it held that kind of, like, it, it did feel different and kind of darker and kind of grimier, as, as you said, than a, a Raw or an Nitro at the time. And I thought they retained that feel while also giving it that network sheen. Like you said, that was the one thing that stood out to you was that it really... It had a presentation much better and much more professional than you were expecting. And it did, but it also retained those kind of the traditional kind of shaky cam shots at ringside or the the camera being slightly ajar when, when Joey and Joel are on camera. And it re- retained those kind of signature ECW spots while looking at bit more professional and you know a bit brighter while not being oh you know modern day wwe ott with the brightness um i i think it feels like ecw in 2000 and i think that's not necessarily a bad thing and it feels like the year 2000 in many ways as well just Mm -hmm. the for everything from like the fashion to um like the shaky cam that you mentioned there I, I I could totally see that being on like some uh, some sports show with the word extreme with three X's in it, uh, or like <laughs> some ridiculous show on MTV or something like that. Like it it really it gives you a, a feel of uh, of the of the era for sure. And we'll we'll get more into that into detail in uh, in talking about some of these matches. They're very. Uh, very of of their era um i think i think this mm-hmm. this is a really good time capsule i think is is the best uh way i can describe it because WWE were always kind of like everything is in for lack of a better term the or wf at the time the the their universe you know it's mm-hmm. it, it it's not always been super representative of culturally the era now some things were so big that they ended up influencing the culture themselves like a lot of the attitude era stuff like in 98 like um a lot of stone cold dx stuff like that got so big it influenced the culture itself but i think um the culture didn't hugely influence um the wf in the way this and wcw in the way that the culture influenced ECW and that's something that was in ECW's core because talked about it with Jesse in the 1995 episode like it really felt like between the music and the, just the general just 
look of everything, it felt like it was representative of the that kind of grunge, early 90s grunge culture that was um, so prominent at that time. And then here in 2000, you really feel like you're like, yeah, it's just it's very um, like I said, it's something that you could you could see on an if you went to another channel on another um for for something that was like a different type of content, you could imagine it having a lot of the same vibes as this uh, ECW on TNN show did. But uh, yeah, that's here, here's a comparison you you might not get, Alan, but um, I think some listeners would understand. Whereas WWE or WWF was MTV, ECW would have been more at home on MTV Two, which was like the alternate kind of new metal. That's where you know, your Limp Biscuits and stuff like that would have been showcased more. Um, and that's that kind of fit. Like you say, ECW, like ECW embraced the culture. It didn't kind of shape it. It more, whatever was hot, ECW would embrace. So like we see in the intro video, like Fred Durst is right there with Steve Carino. You know, that that's that's like playing right into the hands of, of the teams that were getting hot at that time. So Absolutely. And uh we talked about um, ECW feeling scorned by the network and things they did uh, to uh, to turn the tables on them, so to speak, and um, to try to uh, uh, take their shots back at the at TNN. And I suppose the biggest example of that was what we see right from the off in this show. And I want to talk about just this in general, tread the show, Lee. Um, the network gimmick, which was uh, headed by um, one Cyrus the Virus, the future uh, or past, I suppose, <laughs> Don Callis. That is his real name. <laughs> the uh, present, I suppose, as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the past uh, jackal. That's uh, yes. that's what I was, I was thinking as well. But uh, yeah, old Cyrus uh, was here and. Uh, People will know him with his ECW run for this gimmick where he is the network representative. He is the um, pro wrestling expert hired by the network. He he had another term he used. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, yeah, the guy who basically was like the pro wrestling um, uh, point of contact for the, the network so he would feed things back and forth uh, between the the two parties and um yeah he was full of insider uh terminology full of um insider references uh full of um getting out paul e's spite for the network um in tongue-in-cheek ways no better example uh, than um, on, uh, and I actually watched uh, the two episodes leading into this because um, uh, initially okay. I, I got confused between air date and broadcast date. Ah, so okay. I downloaded the uh, February 5th episode and then I realized it wasn't the one you had picked. So I was already halfway <laughs> through and I was like, oh, I'll finish this. I'm enjoying it. And then I, I said, I'll get the, the episode in the week in between as well. So I ended up watching Tree and um, the, the Cyrus character and the network gimmick gets pretty repetitive over the course of these three episodes in one it's probably oh this is interesting this is good but it was basically the same three 
three weeks in a row is basically the same thing back to back and like the same jokes where he was super enthusiastic about roller jam or was was a roller yeah it was roller yeah jam, roller yeah. jam roller yeah rollerball was the original and roller jam was the the what they brought back um here in 2000 on tnn and um he would do these really over the top plugs of roller jam rather than uh, and make reference to not giving enough um uh coverage to ecw and stuff like that so lots of paulie's frustrations coming out through don Callis here um ultimately he would go on to kind of head a network stable with the um rising heels in the in the in the promotion at the time steve carino being the centerpiece but also tajiri and rhino um so Callis would kind of serve to be your more so traditional heel manager with a stable of guys like he is now and yeah but this was this was kind of early days in the this was early days in ecw on tnn it was only a couple of months in and they're already clearly very frustrated and early days of this character here at the the start of 2000 and what did you i, I, uh, I think, I think you the, fr- the frustration had started like within a couple of weeks and um I think the Cyrus character wasn't that long afterwards. It's really now that, like you say, they, it was around this time they really were establishing the network um, faction and kind of uh, like going heavy on the beatdowns and stuff. But yeah, no, I, look, I dipped in for this show, so I enjoyed the little two-minute uh, Cyrus introduction, taking shots at, you know, with the, the headset and the production room like Paulie would do to open the pay-per-views or the TV shows in the past. Um I like thought that was a nice little nod. I do 100% agree if I was watching three or four episodes, it would get very tiresome, especially if it's three or four episodes from the same taping. Um, like you watched, because they were all taped, the three episodes you watched were all taped on the fifth. Um, so I understand how it would be little kind of one note. But... Um, yeah, like the, the the network group for me, it was it was clever in its inception of a good way to get heat with the ECW fans because it was no secret that ECW weren't happy. Like Paulie was not happy with the network, so I think it was a good way to get heat with those kind of hardcore ECW fans. Yeah, it's like your inside, like it works on two levels because for your insider fans that are super hardcore into it and following um, things and like they're going to get that um they're going to get their jollies off it mm-hmm. both being insider stuff cuz like we all went through that phase um and so they're going to enjoy that and then they're also if they're like super pro ECW they're going to be really yeah we're sticking it to the network yeah. fuck those guys and um then if you're just a Oh God, I don't want to use the term, but if you're just a more casual fan, um, <laughs> they exist. They existed in 2000, Alan. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not, but uh, they um, like if you don't really care for the insider stuff, or some of it goes over your head, well, then at the very basis, it's still just an annoying, obnoxious heel, heel, heel yeah. leading um, a bunch of charges um, that are going against the baby faces. So it's pretty simple and easy to follow so it works on on two levels um yeah i i would know uh cyrus probably did find ways to, to mix things up as as it went on um i i think 
Callus is a strong enough performer overall and has been for most of his career that I'm sure he did uh that he did find ways to do that. But um yeah. Uh in my experience watching the show on the two before it, it was still kind of yeah, same jokes uh every week. Um uh I do enjoy um uh him talking about heat with the network and uh he he said uh he was there was something about uh he was like heat with the boys is one thing heat with the office is another but you do <laughs> not want heat with the network <laughs> i just thought that was just tremendous but uh that, that, yeah. that's just poly all over isn't it don't care if i annoy the boys don't care if i annoy the office but if i annoy <laughs> the network then i'm in trouble <laughs> <laughs> Um, another kind of uh, just overall sort of presentation thing here is we had Joel Gurner and Joey Styles. I don't know if they were doing their on-camera stuff um, like as pre-tapes, not as part of the shows, or if these were as ECW traditionally done, did it, filmed during the course of, of the tapings. Um, but uh, they... Um, they were kind of the the anchor presence of the shows that they would cut back to them. They obviously did commentary on all the matches. What did you think of Gertner and Styles as a for the time a pair of television announcers? I think if like if they came on and they were doing this exact act on AEW this week absolutely AEW would get raked over the coals but um i think for the time they were like almost the perfect uh commentary duo um i think they would have provided the ecw fan of the day exactly exactly what they wanted and i think in what would just kind of carry over regardless of error i think they're just basic broadcasting skills were pretty solid i i don't think you can level any complaints at them in terms of their broadcasting skills content is something that definitely doesn't carry um through the errors uh that, that that's exactly my comments as well i i thought joey and joel were, were perfect for the time and um, they were perfect for the ecw product i think joel you know in particular gave the ecw fans things to uh to enjoy and laugh at or laugh about um to latch on to <laughs> yes to latch on to and joey i think played the straight man very well especially in that company Um, that was his biggest strength i think he he you know he could rattle off somebody's career history in a minute and a half while somebody's making an entrance and then you know joel will crack a joke and i thought like that that kind of worked very well um but yeah, like obviously the content is mm, no bueno these days, and even at the time, like there'd be a lot of stuff you kind of roll your eyes at if you were if you weren't of an age, I'd suppose. But yeah, like I, I thought they were pretty pretty good, pretty enjoyable. Yeah, and they made that a part of the network gimmick too, in the sense that they would build up to um, Gertner doing like whatever lewd thing he was going to say and like you knew based on the rhyming what was most likely coming next out of his mouth and then callus would uh, appear and he'd be like cut 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 we can't have that on the network and stuff like that so um 
a uh, a great way of getting heat with the. Uh, I've I've seen far far too many Joel Gertner and Don Callis brawls in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, they they became more commonplace as as that year went on, mm-hmm. I guess, because Gertner is he's still kind of your he's like Jerry Lawler, or maybe at a certain point where he was still kind of favoring the heels, but he was a babyface announcer essentially. Like he would do things that the the crowd would enjoy and then like if if a genuine heel came there like it's like with Lawler he was like supporting like Triple H and people like that but like when Taz got into it with like Lawler and the King Law you saw like mm-hmm. Lawler drop the goofy heel comedy stuff and like be a pure baby face standing up for him and and Or. I think what you have to remember with Gertner is he's just coming off being a part of the Dudley Act in 98, 99. And, you know, they were they were mega heat heels in that company. And, you know, Gertner was he was slowly transitioning, I think, to just being more of a just a a comedy color commentator. Yeah, indeed. Um, So let's get into uh, some of the wrestling here, Lee. We have three matches on this show. Um, Three matches which have a a bit of a similarity flowing through them in certain parts of their DNA, but also three, um, three distinct matches. So you've got a tag team match um, which pits at, the two teams that were basically ECWs, for lack of a better example, Hardy Boys and Edge and Christian, in the sense that these were the the young two teams on the rise in the promotion. Um, you also have a, a super crazy CW Anderson match, which pits a guy who's established and over against a guy who hasn't got there yet, is very much emerging into the promotion and would get more of an opportunity as the year goes on. And then you have your main event, which is Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka. For what it is, it is one of the most reliable combinations in wrestling history. Um, it was a match put together because of Rob Van Dam's um, broken ankle that he suffered. They had been building up an awesome uh, RVD match. Um, but we get Awesome Masato Tanaka for the ECW World title instead. Um Let's talk first. Let's take these in order of how they happened in the show. Chetty and Nova versus uh, Danny Doring and Roadkill. I don't think I even mentioned their names when I mentioned the match <laughs> a minute ago. But yeah, it was, uh, Ch- Chetty and Nova against Danny Doring and Roadkill. Um, so I'll let you go first on this one, Lee. What were what were your takeaways of, of these two teams, where they were at, what they offered ECW at this point in time? Yeah, I think I think you said it best. These were like a, a pair of homegrown young young or young guy teams that were very much like ECW guys. Like you, you couldn't see a, a Danny Doring or a Chris Chetty. Well, maybe you could have seen a Chris Chetty maybe in a WCW, but you wouldn't see Danny Doring or Nova or Roadkill kind of on a, a Nitro or a Thunder at this point. And they, you know, they were rough around the edges, and you know. They weren't they weren't all there yet, I don't think. But I I thought they had, you know, good chemistry, these two teams. I thought they worked very well together. Um 
I'm guessing it's because of a, a lot of repetition. I thought Chetty in particular came across very well. Like I, I've seen a lot of ECW 2000 and I always, every time I go back to him, I always forget like, I'm like Chris Chetty was good. Like he, this was his it, return after being out for several months with an injury. They, they said he had yeah. gotten injured at the Anarchy Rules pay-per-view, which I think mm-hmm. was September 99. So he'd yes. been out like five months. Um, and like Chetty is a guy that I always go back to and think, I wonder what if, like he, he's a guy that I think could have had a, a bit more of a career, but um, yeah, I, I like I like this match. I thought it was a nice little TV match. Like you're not going to be blown away by what was shown, but I thought it was solid in all the right ways. I thought um, you know two two face teams really. I didn't think there was a standout heel team here. And it's all part of a, a kind of a wider reset of the tag division with the impact players obviously involved um, after the match. But yeah, no, I, I enjoyed this match. Um, one thing, one production note I really, I really thought was very good. And I think, you know, it's something that companies in 2024 could really take away is we got a Masato Tanaka promo while Doring and Roadkill make their entrance and it actually continues on as Chetty and Ova's music hits. And I thought that was really good. It's really, like it's telling you, come here, the entrances, that's fine. You don't need to see the guys come out. It's it's all about setting up this main event. And I thought that was really good. And they do something similar later um, in the reverse, mm-hmm. because when Osman and Tanaka are getting set to come out for their match, I don't know if it interrupted an entrance, but it was right as the match was kind of starting. They... Um, or the segment was starting, they did a, a promo just kind of shaped as like, this is happening right now as we get to our main event mm-hmm. um, uh, with uh, Chetty and Nova reacting to what happens in, in this match. So what happens in this match is, is uh, we have Doring and Roadkill win, but then the ECW Tag Team Champions that you mentioned, Lance Storm and Just Incredible, the Impact players come out with Don Marie and... Jason. Um, I, I can't think Jason without thinking uh, Chris Zellner saying Jason. Um, Jason, yes. <laughs> they all come out and Jason, like the most, I, I never understood Jason. Why did the Impact players have this guy around? He literally never helped. He was terrible. If he did try to assist in like a beatdown or whatever, he'd end up like, like he, he was just a total um like you never had to worry about like him like beating up your favorite baby face like it was like oh yeah my baby face might might be destroyed but they're still gonna kick jason's ass i was like and he had no heat like uh, he was just he was a complete non-entity like both from a kayfabe and he he was just there to be jason and that's what he was that he was jason yeah (laughs) i know it was just a he was just I, I never understood him. And that, that even goes back to when he was with like the Pitbulls and stuff. But um, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Don Marie, a hell of a lot more over an important part of, of the act um, mm-hmm. with the Impact players. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about them in, in a moment. I, I On the match itself, I echo a lot of your thoughts, I think. I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it partly as a fascinating look at what stage wrestling was at at this point in time and what a match between four rising stars would 
looking to kind of push the envelope would look like. And ultimately, my my takeaway was that this was caught in between eras in the sense that if you think like several years prior, early 90s, WCW, mid 90s, um, there was still like a lot of that old school polish inter I'm thinking tag wrestling here, but this could be extended out. Um, just the, the fluidity of, of what like your typical, very good TV wrestling tag match or singles match would look like with guys like the Hollywood blondes, Ricky steamboat, Dustin Rhodes, uh, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, one, two, three kid. Like those were the, the up and coming, rising stars of seven eight years earlier who had very much mastered what had come from the 80s and put their own spin on things with their own experiences and become all-time greats in, in many of their cases and then in the 2000s into the mid 2000s especially you would see kind of the next big advancement with the rise of independent wrestling, TNA, your AJ Styles, your American Dragons, Smojos, Lokis, I could go on and on, um, Generation Next, all, all those guys, um, Machine Guns, Briscoes. Like, you hear those names, you think of a certain style of wrestling, what it looked like at its best. And in this late 90s, early part of the 2000s period um i think just the wrestling ecosystem of the time the the landscape with wcw and ecw about to close and opportunities getting shot and and young young stars young wrestlers who uh, kind of getting their careers cut off prematurely because of the landscape that they were that they were operating in um, you see kind of this kind of lost period. And it's fascinating to look at two teams who were very much on the rise in this period and what they put out there as an advancement of what had been eight years earlier, but what hadn't turned into what would become what will come down the pike seven, eight years later. Um, it mm-hmm. seemed primitive. It seemed like they had a goal in what they were trying to do, but they didn't know how to do it. And I think there's like multiple things that would form the difference between what these guys put out here and what you would see in, say, 2006. Um, on an ROH show or a TNA pay-per-view. I, I, was, I, think, I, was, I was just going to say that I think like you could see these two teams being a part of like an early ROH undercard. Um, yeah. If, and like, if, e- like, like everything you said, I instantly thought of Christian York and Joey Matthews because they're yeah. to me the ultimate team that got lost between generations. And, and Joey Matthews kind of re recalibrated and... Mm became this young veteran guy that was around in 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 WWE with Eminem and and then briefly with Ring of Honor but Christian York completely fell off the map um mm-hmm. so 
like and we talked about a tree count on the show we did last month and tree count did manage to like shannon moore and shane helms obviously uh were two guys who managed to catch on with wb and have enough of a career um there and advanced their career in a certain way but even for them still i think if they came around five years later their careers would have looked very different they would have probably been very different wrestlers they probably would have been better wrestlers and they they might have had longer more well thought of careers but um i think these guys who came around in, in the in the mid to late 90s i, th- I think there's a couple of, of factors at play into why they didn't get to find the the magic formula for advancing the style i think like one thing would be the just sheer sheer numbers i think you saw a large increase in young wrestlers who were enthusiastic about wrestling and kind of removed from the I don't want to, I don't care about being a good wrestler mentality that came with many people a generation beforehand. You had a lot of like-minded young wrestlers who were driven to be good wrestlers and have good matches come around seven, eight years later. There wasn't that for these guys. There was just, there was like literally a handful. Um, You like, as I mentioned, Edge of Christian, the Hardys on one channel, Tree Count on the other, these guys here in ECW, and then on the indie scene, you had like what, like Reckless Youth, Mike Quackenbush, Don Montoya, Christopher Daniels. Some, you, the, the pickings were slim. So just in terms of sheer volume of guys to get in the ring with and mix it up with and learn from and bounce things off, they were limited with that. Another thing that I think is underrated is that um, like tape trading was obviously a, a, a fairly decent sized thing in in the 90s um but it wasn't as accessible as it would become in the 2000s and Mm. i think where you can clearly see like nova has watched some japanese stuff and is copying some moves and 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 you'll see a move here or there okay they've taken that from this guy in japan or this guy in mexico like I'd say the exposure these guys were getting to wrestling around the world was super limited compared to what would happen seven, eight years later, where you had every wrestler on the indies with a giant pile of Toriumon DVDs and um, uh, the latest from Noah, the latest from um, CMLL or whatever. And, and you would have guys going around and getting experiences in different places, whether it was a Brian Danielson and Christopher Daniels going over to, to new Japan or, um, uh, Cole Cabana going to the UK, uh, and, and t- learning from these other places around the world and bringing it back. And, and just everyone kind of getting, it was like a melting pot of all this stuff. There was just way more resources for, what would be established with the style to to come through um and years I, I later think, I, I think that's also a factor is the fact that the generation after these guys were just so damn good so early um you like you've m- mentioned there chris daniels 
AJ Styles was on national TV this the beginning of 2001. Um, Brian Danielson, as you said, went to Japan very early in his career at the UK. Loki was obviously in like by the early 2000s was like already great. Samoa Joe was not that long into the decade either, but he comes along. Like there's already a, a generation of guys rising up right behind these guys. And by the time these guys would have got a bit more experience and maybe had, like you said, those conversations with people who are more willing to work with them and kind of embrace their ideas, they've probably already been bypassed. Yeah, they they really, they have, they've been bypassed and people have seen them. Um, like I know when I was getting into the indies in 0203, if Ring of Honor booked Nova or Chris Chetty or Danny Doring, like I would have been like, oh, that guy from ECW, like I would have thought of them as this washed up guy, even though they were like probably in their 20s. Like, mm-hmm. I remember um, even uh, it was during the, the Punk Raven feud, uh, Death Before Dishonor, there was like a thing where Danny Doring was in the crowd and like Punk disrespected him or something like that. And they played it up and I was like, oh, Danny Doring, that washed up guy from ECW. He was probably like 25. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. So, um, yeah, like I just think wrong, t- wrong place, wrong time for for these guys. But you could tell they... They were driven. There's no lack of effort. I mean, mm-hmm. Roadkill, Roadkill does, who may have, of of the four guys in the match, despite his size, been the most athletically talented of the of the four guys in this match. He does a um, top rope splash where he climbs to the middle of the top rope, not in the corner, the middle, to the floor through a table, which was just crazy. So there's no shortage of effort here. Um, they just didn't know like Nova was coming up with these moves but like he had no idea there was nothing between the moves it was just Mm -hmm. everything was kind of thrown out there there was not really cohesion Um, and again that comes with practice it comes with guys getting different experiences and um, but, but again, I think that goes to your point of with the show, it was of that time. And that was something that yeah. of the time people enjoyed was these guys are just going out there and spamming big moves for, for lack of a better term. Um, and that's what the undercard of an ECW show would be sometimes was just, yeah. you know, let's get these kind of young, inexperienced guys out there together, see what they come up with, see what sticks. And we go from there. A, a Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat versus Bobby Eaton and Aaron Anderson match from 1992 probably wouldn't have worked on the ECW crowd no. of 2000. I, I don't think they would have had the patience for it. So, um, yeah, uh, very just fascinating match, but also just enjoyable to watch. Like, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't want to watch this, like, 20 versions of this match back to back. But, you know, it's not something I typically watch a lot of his US TV wrestling of of the year 2000 and um yeah it, it was fascinating to see um so i would say good stuff there uh, i just also should comment on the looks of of these guys obviously roadkill <laughs> the very distinct um he was he was Amish roadkill so he has yes. the look uh, it was a tribute to that adoring uh, just had this really um 
he he didn't really look like a star in his singlet that looked like it was like a jobber singlet. Like it was like the singlet like a jobber would wear on a WF squash match in uh, 1993. Danny Doring to me was always like um, like a gaudy Brehart because he'd always have these like bright luminous colors. But he had like the, the Brehart singlet and, and very similar tights. So that's what, like, but with in my no head, designs, it was just like, no, no, it was just very plain and basic, just very plain, like pink just, into yellow, like, yeah, a the colors would always be insane, <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, Nova was the full jumpsuit Nova deal, like, he had lost a lot of, um, a lot of weight at this point, so, um, he was, uh, he was looking to show off the physique a bit more with his, um, with his, his jumpsuit deal that he used to wear, um. The really fascinating one to me was Chris Chetty, who was dressed like a uh, a young character in Sopranos going on a night out. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, what was the name of the dude? Um, um, oh, I forget his name. Uh, the uh, pre, um, uh, the oh, uh, young Priya. Priya. Um, April, yeah. Um, not Richie was the brother. Um, oh God, I'm. I'm blanking on that, but yeah, um, it's not Richie uh, Junior. No, I thought Richie was the brother that I, uh, I can't remember. See, I've, I've, only watched, I've, I've only watched uh, limited Soprano, so I'm the wrong guy oh, to question on that. Uh, one. A classic, but yeah, just one of these like characters in Sopranos in the early 20s who was like just a massive dipshit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was. He was dressed like he was going out to the club on on Jersey Shore in the year two thousand. Um, uh, from the haircut to the uh furry top deal that he was wearing to the the pants. Um, yeah, I don't remember Chris Chetty wrestling in in gear like this, but I guess he did. Uh, um, so yeah, that was that. Um, the speaking of people's looks, uh, the Impact players, as we mentioned, um, came out and attacked afterwards. Lance Storm would very just the most landstorm look you can imagine plain white runners plain blue jeans and a cut way too small tank top that just says the gym on it and uh, <laughs> not a just, specific specific gym just the gym <laughs> just the gym uh and i i think that was a popular uh clothing brand with uh, the bodybuilder types of of the time just incredible um lance didn't have the uh classic um uh, Lance thing, which I enjoy sometimes with his his blue jeans, uh, white trainers combo that he would wear. He would have the uh, the pager cell phone um, uh, clip on the side. I always popped for that. Um, just incredible. Um, in my mind, when I think just incredible, I think WF Jobber, early ROH, um, uh, just incredible kind of looking a bit homeless, looking a bit scrawny. Um, just incredible was, uh, he was looking like a guy who was ready for a main event push here. Uh, he was every bit as big as Lance Storm. He was yoked. Yeah. Th- this is probably the best, uh, just incredible ever looked. Now that's not much of a compliment when you remember it's just incredible. Unfortunately, um, I get why Polly pushed him. Because, you know, he was a dependable guy that Polly could afford at this point. There wasn't that many of them. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, just just incredible. I don't think ever was the guy. And I get why they had to try. 
it just never worked for me. I think the Impact Players was a much better presentation of Just Incredible. I think Lance gave him a real, for lack of a better term, credibility <laughs> as a partner. Um, and the, the unit worked, worked much better for me than any Just Incredible so, uh, singles push. Yeah, I th- I think it was a really strong unit they had there. Like they, were, for me as someone just reading about this stuff in Power Slam, like they were super over with with me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they they did real well here. Um, and and the next match, Super Crazy versus CW Anderson. Um, uh, I would also say this was of the time, but with the amount that. Uh, tables were used in this match and with the crowd's appreciation of tables um, I felt like I was uh, watching an AEW show from um, <laughs> February uh, 2024. Lee what is with the just um, resurgence in the pro wrestling fandom of the overness of tables here in 2024? I thought <sighs> we were past this. What is going on? I don't know. I, like, Don't get me wrong. I, I do enjoy a table spot, but like one on a show is enough. But yeah, it, 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 it's insane to can me. You, that can in- you honestly like picture and no, I, if, 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 if the answer is yes, I, I think uh, nothing less of you, Lee. That's a lie. I think a lot less of you if the answer is yes. Um, could you see yourself as a man in his 30s in a crowd going, we want tables, we want tables. I, I just can't fathom it. I can't, I can't imagine myself doing that now, Alan. But um, look, I, I've seen, I think, every table spot conceivable to a man at this point in my Lee, lifetime. If, you, if, if uh, your son, Connor was chanting that i would look and i go connor come on you're a bit more mature than that now know, uh, alan you know i don't want to bring it up but my you know my son is aware of something that you may not be oh yeah that, <laughs> that uh you know about terry funk so i just i'll leave it at that oh god like he rolled his eyes when you got that wrong so that's uh, that's all i'll say <laughs> <laughs> Let's, but, not, uh, let's not bring up old wounds. Exactly. We won't go there. But no, look, I I don't understand this like newfound fascination with table spots in 2024. It's it's you know unfathomable unfathomable to me. But in the year 2000, you know, it's all like ECW at that point, like tables were old hat. Like they were doing burning table spots with thumbtacks on them in 1999 to try and get a pop. So the fact that, you know, a simple spine buster or moonsaults through a table is still getting somewhat of a reaction, I think is more of a credit to the guys in the ring than anything else. Um, what about when you're um, uh, working with tables that are refusing to break and then in an attempt to get them to break, you do an acai moonsault onto the underside of a table and nearly impale your um Adam's apple on the table leg. Um, in fact, you do impale your Adam's apple on the table leg, and I just don't know how it didn't kill the man because super crazy in a moment uh, where he lived up to his name, clearly frustrated because the tables weren't breaking, um, puts the table upside down on top of uh, on top of um, C.W. Anderson. And I don't know why he thought this was going to actually break the table, but hey, it was a rush of adrenaline. He does an acai moonsault, like with no, no, like pre-planning. No, okay, he's here. I'm going to take my time a little bit and make sure this is safe. No, he just went for it. And he rotated right onto 
both legs. parts of the table legs. It was like he genuinely could have died. Oh, he, he almost like I, it's insane to me that he didn't. But I've, I watched it back a couple of times and I still can't figure out did did CW move the table away from? Oh, from super crazy and kind of save his life or did did cw readjust it in such a way that the table moved <laughs> to endangers and i can't figure it out but like either way the fact that super crazy just went this table didn't break i'm gonna do an acai moonsault with no forethought is just like like you say living up to the name but other than that um i thought super crazy was really over um yeah i think that was one of the better things in ECW in the year 2000 was how they got behind Super Crazy and Tajiri especially. Um, they were always one of the highlights of the show. Like if you ever go back and watch, like I know you said, you've not done a, a big rewatch of the, of uh, ECW on TNN, but like their their singles push was really a big part of the show. And I thought that that, that was a credit to ECW at the time. I still have the ECW versus or Super Crazy versus Yoshihiro Tajiri uh, best of comp that our pal Jamesy gave me um, about like probably nine years ago. Um, <laughs> literally in a box that I'm looking at right now as I record this, and uh, I throw that on randomly from time to time when the mood strikes me. It's like I feel like watching some Super Crazy versus Tajiri. So Jamesy, if you're listening to this and you want that comp back, just let me know. I'll, I'll return it. Um, otherwise, um, it's going to stay in the box and uh, be broken out occasionally when I want to see uh, an insane luchador and a um, and the Japanese boss so I'll go at it. But uh, um, one, uh, just before that, one thing that always always pops me on these ECW, ECW rewatches is the onewrestling.com extreme replay. <laughs> <laughs> That's of its time. That I wasn't prepared for um, throughout the show. Um, I was going to talk some sponsor stuff uh, as, a, as a tidbit. Um, um, but we'll we'll tr- we'll throw it in, them in here now. You had the one wrestling, you had the acclaim, um, ECW game. Uh, I guess this would have probably been the first one, Hardcore mm-hmm. Revolution, first game, yeah. And uh, you also had ECW magazine, and I don't remember ECW magazine, but the layout and the style of the cover they were showing looked very much like Wow magazine. So I'm wondering, were they under the same publishing house? Um, uh, uh, the game I remember very well. I was a big um, acclaim wrestling guy. I got, got Warzone, got Attitude. Super excited about both those games. I remember ringing up Smiths for months <laughs> in advance. I don't, I don't know what would have been the delay, but I feel like I rang Smiths every day for six months, Lee, about when Attitude was going to come out. Um, and then the day I got it, it was like, uh, I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. This is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I, I do uh, remember the weekend it came out that I rented Hardcore Revolution from X-Vision. Um, I do know that because I remember... Yeah, I only go, ever rented go. the ECW games and I spent a weekend playing the morning, noon and night. Yeah, I remember I had to, like, the, obviously the parents would have to rent it because it was an 18-rated game, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, the... I definitely rented it multiple times. I never owned it like yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty, f- you know, fun game for its, for its time. The yeah, second one, not so much. Ridiculous Blood, which to me is like a 14-year-old. Like, that ticked a lot of boxes right mm-hmm. there. I was like, yep, 
Yep, this is this is great. So seeing the footage of that game brought back some memories, and um, yeah, as you mentioned, OneWrestling.com, I I wasn't prepared for, it, but uh, some interesting sponsors tread tread the show. Um, but uh, C.W. Anderson, um, interesting to see him at this point in his ECW run. I don't think I've ever seen this early of a C.W. Anderson match. He wasn't with the network yet he wasn't with Carino and those guys he was he was with um was it Bill Wiles was that the guy Billy Wiles I think they call him beautiful Billy Wiles and uh Louis Dangerously because they're yes. they're redoing the Dangerous Alliance obviously yes Louis Dangerously oh beautifully because beautiful Bobby yeah. and CW oh my yeah. god I never tweaked that before Lear Jesus oh, okay. <laughs> where was where was ravishing who who could have been ravishing Rick Rude if they really wanted to make it shitty? They could have had Jason as ravishing Rick Rude. I was just, I was just um, Jason was going to be my suggestion. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, um, it was uh, Louis Dangerously, by the way, would go on to um, have some notoriety as uh, part of the the punk camp, very much uh, um, uh, in in later years and. Um, would become like a very successful promoter, I think, or something around Chicago. Um, yeah, a man with a lot of connections, I believe. But um, uh, yeah, this was um, the earliest CW I think I had ever seen. And uh, he was, he would, his look would improve as the year would go on and he'd start getting more of a push. Um, like it was still C.W. Anderson. His his look was only going to ever kind of reach a certain level. But you could tell he he still looked like more of an enhancement guy at, at this point, which I think was what they were obviously going for with this whole stable. Um, they were really sort of bottom of the tier. Um, but uh, sorry, I'm just going to move out of the uh, away from the background noise that you may hear as someone uh, comes down to uh, put on some food. Um can you still hear me, Lee? I can. I can hear you. Perfect. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, CW was his look may not have been what it would become, but you could tell there was one hell of a worker there. And like I talked about, how like a 1992 WCW match probably wouldn't have gotten over with the ECW crowd, but for like a heel who was absolutely fine to utilize some of the hardcore spots of of the day i think of his his match with tommy dreamer a couple of months later i remember having a a tape which uh of of that pay-per-view i think it was like massacre on 34th street or something like that i know, um, I know they had a, a pay-per-view match uh guilty as charged a one. that might have been it yeah i remember like, really enjoying that match same same and like he, he like he does like a lot of your hardcore stuff but it's in the package of like an old school guy very much like steve carino um i think Mm -hmm. he he was perfect he was like the perfect blend of of your old school worker with your modern ecw style but in a heel package and um i another one of these lost guys that i think if cw anderson came around 10 years earlier he would have been a great guy to have on like a WCW or the ref undercard. Um, maybe size and look would have been an issue um, per- perhaps, but, um, and then in terms of like the 2000s indies, 
I think he could have been like a really like he could have been a guy you could see in like the embassy as a supporting guy for like Jimmy Rave, um, like a really reliable tag team partner for Jimmy Rave. Like you could totally see that. I can absolutely say like there there had to have, like there would have been a role there for a guy like CW, that kind of old school feel guy in with the the kind of new school like yeah, the embassy I think is is a great example where he would have been like just the the grizzled kind of not necessarily like you probably wouldn't have been that much older, but he would have come across as that kind of grizzled old guy that's been there and seen it, and I, kind of would, would would have complemented the kind of newer guys like an Alex Shelley or a Jimmy Rave. I think ultimately TNA would have been the perfect spot for him um, because mm-hmm. I think with TNA you can have more sort of television style wrestling than you would have on like a Ring of Honor DVD where you don't have to. It's not a, to quote Gabe's a DVD product. We have to sell the DVDs. It has to be great matches. Like when you have that more balanced product like TNA was, um, uh, I think he would have really he would have really fit in there, um, but. He, he, I, I, I don't know what his relationship was like with TNA officials throughout the years and why he never caught on there. But I know he had a big falling out with Gabe early in Ring of Honor when him, when and him and Gabe star when he started getting used in some of the early ROH shows, and then he just didn't turn up for a show or something like that. So like, I think he was always kind of like a bit of a prickly guy and like didn't oh, have patience okay. for bullshit. And I think that might have probably caused him to squander some opportunities that he might have been given, or maybe he was just he was probably right in a lot of these things you know i can imagine as a as a pro wrestler on the indies in the early 2000s you're getting dealt a lot of shit hands and he probably was someone who just didn't have the patience for that and um i know his he did some stuff over in japan with zero one through carino um carino would always try to kind of keep him involved in things he was doing and like mlw was part of the extreme horseman um Mm -hmm. but yeah he just never never really found his landing spot in pro wrestling but i mean the talent was was there in abundance this was a a hell of a wrestler um he's probably still what what age do you think cw anderson is now oh i'd say he's probably in his early 50s I'm going to say he's probably even a little younger, but let's see. Um, well, one thing I didn't realize, now maybe this is Joey just talking up the Anderson thing. Yeah, you're, you're right, he's 52. Oh, okay. Um, was that he was a power plant guy? Was he really? That That's what Joey says on commentary. Huh. I never knew that. Um, so that that's what I mean. That was news to me, and I was like, "Hmm, okay, that that makes sense in in a way in in the way he wrestles." He uh, he was drafted by the San Diego Padres as a catcher, but rejected the offer. Instead, choosing to attend college, where he studied computing while playing baseball and softball the weekends. <laughs> Good for him. And after graduating college, he wanted a new weekend sport to replace baseball. So uh, uh, he got into pro wrestling. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, trained by WCW Power Plants. Debuted oh, 1993. Retired wow. 2021. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting. Um, so um, 
yeah, this was this was good stuff. And like, I think these two could have had multiple very good matches with each other. I think there was chemistry there for sure. Um, speaking of guys with chemistry, we have Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka Lee. Take it away. This was the reason I picked this show. Um, as soon as I was, I was looking through, you know, uh, TV listings and all that for, for February. Um, and I came across this. I was like, well, I know there's going to be at least one very good match on this show. And yeah, look, Tanaka and Awesome, they don't miss. They just don't. Like, you want to talk about guys that just have that kind of... It's like an unwritten understanding with each other that they just go out there put on the best damn match they're capable of that night. And yeah, it, it, just for me, this this was a match. I didn't even take that many notes. I just kind of sat back and went, it's awesome on Tanaka. I just going to sit here, watch it, enjoy it and go, yeah, that was great. On to, on to the next show. But like, yeah, like I just think they gave ECW such a, a different feel than what you are finding on WCW and... WWF in the year 2000 you weren't getting this type of main event where guys are just going to go out there and take huge bumps I mean not for the betterment they were swinging chairs like they didn't care and you know it's just like I say they're just throwing bombs and I just I just love this type of match I I don't know maybe, maybe that's just a personal thing but I just love watching Tanaka and Awesome work together Masato Tanaka versus Mike Awesome is a match that I like. There will be times where I don't want to watch a Masato Tanaka versus Mike Awesome match, and I won't put one on. But if I ever put one on, it's because I want to watch it. And if I want to watch a Masato Tanaka versus Mike Awesome match, if I want that flavor, it always delivers, no matter the match, whether mm-hmm. it's in ECW or Japan. It always delivers. It's I've never watched one and been like, oh, that was kind of a disappointing, like, awesome Masada match. These guys just did what they did. It was perfect for what they were trying to do. Um, it's, yeah, it's the gift that kept on giving is, is Mike Awesome Masada Tanaka. This is probably one of their, would I be right in saying, one of their more unheralded matches? It's not one I feel gets a ton of talk um obviously it wasn't a pay-per-view I, I, or anything like that i don't think other than maybe the first time i watched the show like i don't recall seeing this like it's not one i've gone back to like like you said it's one of the kind of for me unheralded because it was one i was just like, like i'm sure i've seen this before but i don't remember exactly everything in it and like i even stopped for a minute i was like no tanaka's been champ by this point so he's not winning here and I had to, I had to actually sit back and think for a minute. I was like, no, 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 he definitely doesn't win the title at this point. Um, yeah, because he he won the title on New Year's Eve, and that's like that's a TV match, but it's a way more famous um, yeah. TV match. But um, yeah, like you, there's just times where, like I think you said the best. If you want to watch a Masa, Masato Tanaka and Mike Awesome match, and that's the mood you're in, you're never going to be disappointed. Um, like you of all people, you enjoy every type of wrestling, and sometimes you just want to put on a match where you kind of sit back and watch guys throw bombs, and that that's what these matches are. Like there, there's no downtime in what these guys do. Yeah, it's like sometimes I, I sometimes I want sweet and sour chicken. Sometimes I want uh, uh, beef and black bean sauce. Sometimes I want <laughs> uh, uh, satay chicken. 
depends depends what flavor I'm after. Uh, and I'm trying I'm trying desperately not to do the flavors of ice cream and algae. So instead of just on the Chinese food menu and, and algae, um, it's all it's all Chinese food main courses. They're all they're all good. They're all good. So it's not like the ice cream mm-hmm. flavor thing where people use us to talk about shitty. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that one. My, that? my wife just shouted, "What about a spice bag?" <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm thrown all the way off here now. Uh, yeah, I, oh yeah, I wanted to say um, the finish of this in, in terms of awesome and Tanaka finishes. Like sometimes they'd go, go, they'd go the route where they do a bunch of like crazy, insane stuff with big kickouts, and then. Um, usually Tanaka would be the one that would win with just, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back when he'd just like hit like that final big elbow and that would be it. Um, mm-hmm. But other times they would like just have one really big spot and that would be the finish. And that was the case here. A blind backwards sit out powerbomb from the top rope through a table. Um, spoke so, about super I, I crazy. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, am I the only one that that was watching that and went, I would not, if you paid me all the money in the world, take a blind backward powerbomb. I wouldn't take it or I wouldn't do it. Like Like the the, the control from awesome to fall backwards while performing a powerbomb. Like I was just like the fact that they managed to land this relatively clean was astounding to me after working a 10 minute match where they were throwing each other on their heads yeah it was so impressive looking um because like like if you're if you're awesome and he barely looks backwards he barely gets a feel for where the table is but i guess just as a wrestler he just knew it's just an inherent kind of knowledge of the distance he needed to uh I know, but this doesn't feel like something you'd practice a lot. Like, so no. you build up a, like, this is something that you kind of just do on the spot. Like, if you're going to do it, you want to do it in front of a crowd. and a bit. So, like, yeah, it, I don't know. He just obviously had faith in his positioning, and he he, and, uh, he certainly had right to because he nailed it. Like, and he I, landed I, square on I this. did like with the match, there, there, there was, like, some escalation in the in the in the towards the finish like um tanaka gets the the tornado ddt on the chair which wasn't the finish awesome hits a, a standard sit out awesome bomb he hits the awesome splash and then it's only then that he goes for the as you say the the backwards awesome bomb and like it was a nice it wasn't like an ott escalation of things they weren't like multiple table bumps it was just kind of a nice kind of storytelling for a lack of better term in the match Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, I I thought it made Awesome look strong. Obviously, they had to go a different route here with Orvidi's injury and they were probably just sort of recalibrating. And um, first thing to do is just kind of keep the champ strong and this achieved its its purpose. And uh, mm-hmm. Masato Tanaka is never going to lose anything from, from losing to Mike Awesome. He probably only ever has gained um overness uh from losing to Mike Awesome. But um yeah, very, very good stuff to close out. A very enjoyable and very um interesting to watch uh episode of Wrestling TV. And I did like at the end of the show that they showed kind of like a synopsis, a little recap. Um as I try to sneeze. 
<laughs> Excuse me. Um, they they kind of just showed a little. It was just kind of like really quick little clips um, showing kind of some of the main kind of talking points from from the episode. Just kind of tying uh, everything up in a knot at the end of the show. Just reminding you of what you'd seen. The key things that were your takeaways from this show. I thought that was that was a nice little thing to do. Um, we we often used to uh, on earlier episodes of What's on the Telly use the concept to. Uh, Take things that AEW or no things that AEW could uh, could take and use in their TV, and um, this is something that I I think would be a would be a good thing to throw on at the at the close of a show. So I enjoyed that. But yeah, I I think again it differentiates itself from WCW and WWF to do that, where yep. it's not just the finish of the match, the guy celebrates, and the show is over. It's more this is what you've seen. This is what you're going to see next week. Bang, bang. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a really nice little little uh, little thing to do. Um, anything else on this show, Lee? Before we get to my pick from you? No, I, I think we said it. Like, I think there's there's things that people could take from these ECW on TNN shows and apply to modern wrestling. Like, not everything. I feel like a lot of American TV just copies what they see with WWE and what they've done for the past 20, 25 years. I think there's there's little nuggets that you find in watching back things like like 1992 WCW, um, 2000 DCW. I think there's there's little production notes and things you can take that will really differentiate from modern WWE. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I really, I, I think it wouldn't be a waste of time for like, like I know Tony Khan's got like a incredible memory and um, mm-hmm. that he relies on and it serves him well. Um, but I think it's probably a wouldn't be a bad thing for him or some of his other um, key. Uh, TV people to just go back and watch random things like this and just kind of see, okay, what works, what doesn't work, what's an interesting thing we could think from, take from the show, especially as you get to an era where they have more and more people involved in the production of AEW who are people who were involved with recent vintage WWE. Mm. I think just having that variety um, is is very important a variety of experiences that variety of tastes um in, in terms of what the tv should look like taking something from an 86 episode of mid-south and 91 episode of wcw mm-hmm. and the 2000 episode of ecw and tnn and figuring out how to blend them into your tv show um i think it is good and like um there's nothing wrong with taking like a couple of things from modern WWE if you think you can make them work but just trying to be modern WWE in terms of your presentation is uh, and I'm not saying they're fully doing that but it's going to be a natural thing that happens if you are only having people in the room who are coming with that experience so um, yeah something that doesn't look at all like modern WWE was 1987 New Japan Television and that is my pick here, Lee Malone. It is the February 5th episode of World Pro Wrestling New Japan on TV Asahi. And this was an episode which highlighted the centerpiece of their 
late January, early February tour, a show in Sumo Hall um, that aired on February 5th. So I'm guessing, or sorry, that happened on February 5th. So what I'm guessing was they had this big show and then with the, the slot on TV being later in the night, they had kind of taken the key things and kind of, you know, be like your your big football matches happening on a weekend and then um, turn on match of the day and, and later that night and you you get um, kind of the uh, like we, we get the matches in full, the ones we see, but it's only certain um, things from the show. You're not seeing the, the full card. So uh, that is our presentation here. Um, what was your I know you said you were going to go in blind. What was mm-hmm. your expectation of what you'd kind of be seeing when I told you we were going to do a, a 5th of February 1987 episode in New Japan. So you, you had told me that the TV was centered around Bam Bam Bigelow. So I knew I knew what to expect there. I knew it was the ba- uh, Bigelow and Oki match. So I, I knew what to expect there. But from a presentation point and the rest of the cards, I, I again, like I say, I went in blind. I wasn't sure what I was going to get. I... I've been what like I watched. I discovered New Japan very similar to you on Eurosports, so I was a very you know young young adapter of what New Japan was and kind of remember watching it as I was a young child. So, but seeing the TV kind of modern day and seeing what was presented, I thought I thought it was very well presented. I like I said, I'm not a big watcher of like old New Japan. Um, I, I barely keep up with modern day New Japan. I kind of keep up through podcasts and stuff. I just don't have time to to watch the current product. But the, the older stuff, I kind of I have a lot of gaps in what I have seen and what I haven't seen. And the TV is not something I've ever thought of going back and watching because, again, as a as a Western fan, I, I'm not overly familiar with how it was presented. So on this card, we get the top three matches from. I believe it's what they call New Year Dash Night 27. Um, so I looked up the card after after I watched the show. And yeah, it, it's it's obviously to me from from looking at the matches we get, it's in the midst of the UWF invasion of 86, 87. Yeah, so the UWF guys had broken away and done the initial iteration of that promotion um, a couple of years earlier and here they had come back and they were doing a feud where they were it was kind of a clash of ideologies wasn't so much an outsider's invasion angle like they were back as new japan wrestlers okay. but they were they were their own thing and they fought with each other and there wasn't like guys like you wouldn't have seen a Fujinami tagging with a Fujiwara at this point or anything like that. Um, uh, Takada and Maeda were kind of the two big young stars. They were they had the tag titles, I believe, for a little while here during this period. Uh, Takada had been the junior heavyweight champion before losing it to Koshinaka. This is a rematch of mm-hmm. that, uh, which we will get to in our first match. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what you have going on. Clash of styles, clash of ideologies, and... Um, it would ultimately come to an end. Um, 
earlier than expected when um, uh, Maeda did the whole shoot kick deal on, on <laughs> Ricky Choshu and everything fell apart with, with that uh, a little while down the, down the road. But um, yeah, at, at this point, it's kind of in the in the peak of that. Um, but yeah, you mentioned this was built around Bam Bam Bigelow, um, his first tour of Japan. Um, he is still a rookie at this point. And I love the opening of this show where you just, the show opens with Bam Bam Bigelow, just dest- a little clip, Bam Bam Bigelow destroying Anoki. You just see craziness, fans going crazy, fans going nuts. Um, Bigelow doing a cartwheel, and then it shows clips of Takada kicking Koshinaka's ass and just unleashing a flurry of kicks while crowd goes nuts. All this madness, basically, this is what you're going to see on the show this week. And then it cuts into music that would be at home on like intro to like Wimbledon yeah. at 2 p.m. on a on a, a Wednesday in the summer in the, the UK. It was like do do do, like all Japan had the do 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 That's the classic all Japan team. It was like a version of that. New Japan hadn't started using um. Uh, I forget what their famous theme is called, but they seemingly hadn't started using that yet here. So it was another of these kind of classical, um, just intro to a sports show, like a grandstand or Wimbledon, something like that. I don't know if they had similar type shows in the US that had similar type music, but that's definitely what we grew up on, Lee. Mm -hmm. And it was quite the contrast in audio to what we were seeing on video with this chaos from Sumo Hall. Yeah, no, the the kicks in the head from uh, Takada was what really I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that, that, that does not suit that type of music at all. Yeah, yeah, and and Bigelow, just the look of the man, and mm-hmm. we'll speak to everything about his presentation as as we go here. But uh, we start things off straight in, like the commentators at ringside do a bit of a like they obviously film some stuff for the tv earlier in the day when the show was happening and um so they are introing things and we go straight to takada uh challenging koshinaka for the iwgp junior heavyweight championship um i've seen matches between these two guys before i've really enjoyed them i've known how highly they're thought of I've probably never sat down and watched one as locked in as I was here for the purpose of talking about it. Like where I just put everything else aside. I'm noting certain things. I watched it twice. I watched it originally a couple of weeks ago to decide this was the show I wanted to to do. And then I rewatched it again last night just to um, really have it fresh in my brain. And in doing that, I have such a bigger appreciation for how friggin great this match was between the story they were telling mm-hmm. the authenticity the physicality and the crowd heat if if you were given this presentation right now in 2024 i would give this like if you want to talk star ratings this is this is a four and three quarters for me all the way i adored this match lee malone one of my favorite matches um, one of the best matches we have covered on a What's on the Telly episode. I just thought this was absolutely tremendous. Um, just the 
uh, without going into too many of the the intricacies uh, right off the bat here, the the overall story of the matches, you've got Takada as just this better athlete, better technician, better submissions, better strikes, um, kicking the ass out of out of the New Japan um, homegrown. Well, they're both New Japan homegrown, but a New Japan guy who hadn't had that realistic he didn't have that realistic um shoot style aura he was just he was just a wrestler shiro koshinaka and what he had was toughness and um trickery and a willingness to do whatever it took to win and he withstands the beating of all beatings and ends up doing something that you could say it was a little bit of a dirty tactic uh he took things a bit further than his opponent was willing to do in terms of bending the rules and bending the fingers and hand of his challenger to do whatever it took to get out of there with his title. Um, that's the overall tent poles of this match. Um, I'll, I'll fill in a couple of the, um, uh, the things that happened during the course of it that I really loved. But uh, Lee, overall, your thoughts on on this um was it better than you expected it would be did you uh um have a similar level of appreciation as i did for it or am i out to lunch i know i I thought this this match was great like i'm not like i can watch shoot style wrestling now not to say this is shoot style it's not it's kind of a a very much a, a strong style match for me but i i'm not like i can't sit down and watch like a whole shoot style show so I like I've seen Takada, I've seen a lot of Takada, probably more of Takada than I had of Koshinaka. And to see Koshinaka just go in there and willingly be like he was willingly beaten, he had his ass kicked in this match. And the story they told throughout this match, it, it even caught me off guard because the the first time you see um Takada sell the hand, I I thought nothing of it. And the fact that that plays into the finish, I, I did. Just, I did it was notice genius. it. I did notice it the first time around. It was knowing how the match unfolds when I watched it last night, and I saw in the very early stages, mm-hmm. Koshinaka just take this one swipe and connect with the hand of Takada, and Takada sell it, and they just filed that away. Yeah, Some it was. It was just. It was noticed. a nothing, nothing moment early in the match, and it was one thing I, I noticed. I was like, oh. Um, Takada must have a hand injury because a couple of his fingers, I think, are taped together or are taped very heavily anyway. And it was one of them things. I was like, oh, maybe it was just one of them things of just his hand got caught or whatever. And the fact that that would play so strongly into the finish, I just thought was genius for for a match that was not like not that it wasn't telling that story, but was the fact that Koshinaka just kept going back to it at once he realized um. I thought the, the the way Koshinaka approached the match was fantastic. Like he told the story with his with his body language that Takada's the stronger striker here. If he catches me in a submission, I may be done for. And they approached particularly the, match. the chicken wing. Mm-hmm. There was two. There was two moves that he was like selling. Like I 
cannot like my life is on the line if I get put into a crossface chicken wing or a dragon suplex. I cannot let this man deliver either of these moves on me, and I will fight like my life depends on it if he goes for either of them. Mm-hmm. He was he was put into like the Fujiwara armbar quite a few times and other moves he got hit with quite a few times. Um, he could take them. He could he could toughen those out, but he did not want any part of the chicken wing or the dragon suplex. And, and it wasn't so much that he felt he could take them. It was like early in the match, as soon as Takata would lock in any kind of submission, there was a scramble for the ropes or he'd roll out a ring or like he was instantly looking for a way out. And like I say, I, I've not seen a ton of Koshinaka. Like I'd more know Koshinaka from like more kind of New Japan matches. But it was just like, oh, he's the guy that invented the hip attack. He's the hip attack guy. And to see him in here just like like you said like kicked in the head multiple times like his his mouth is pretty bloody by one point in the match um and he just he he does go toe to toe with with uh, Takada and I I really did enjoy this match I thought it was definitely the best match on the show um and one of my favorite like I'd say this is like one of my favorite Takada matches I've seen this is honestly one of my f- one of my favorite matches of the 80s. Maybe it's because I just paid such super close attention to it. Um, there's a lot of times when I'm watching old wrestling, it's kind of a little bit on the background, you know, maybe mm. I'm not fully zoned in on it. But I, yeah, like this, uh, this is just to me as uh, for the style they're going for, it's as good as it kind of gets. And um the crowd reactions give it so much as well. I mean, when they emerge from mm-hmm. kind of the initial feeling out process and Takada unla- unloads with like the very first flurry of kicks, the crowd is steaming hotly. Mm-hmm. Like, and it doesn't subside like any time from, from that point onwards, the crowd are just going crazy for every little thing that happens. Every big thing. Uh, they are just white hot it this is sumo hall pro wrestling this is 80s sumo hall pro wrestling i hate i hate i hate to be that guy but there's just a noise that japanese crowds make in the 80s and early 90s that i don't think has ever been replicated anywhere and just the the chanting and it's just that heat like that heat like it's real and you feel it coming through the screen it's like if you're watching a big sporting event, like a big soccer match, and like pick your famous ground where just there's this just background noise, this huge um, just blend of cheering and screaming going on, which just aids a product so much. And God, I'll just take that so many a hundred times out of a hundred over a crowd that don't really care about what's happening in the match, but my God, if a table comes out, they will pop or, (laughs) um, yeah, like just that's, it's just not engaging to me, but hearing a crowd like this, just reacting to what's happening, um, and being so invested in it is, is tremendous. Um, uh, the, so I mentioned, um, the, uh, the chicken wing and the dragon suplex and how um, 
like they were just like absolute danger spots um there's when um when Takada eventually second wing after Koshinaka fought it he finally gets one but it's near the ropes and Koshinaka at this point you mentioned him being happy to take rope breaks earlier in the match but at this point he was I think so there was so much pride on the line at this point deep in the match they had been at such a war that he didn't really want to take the easy way out but he knew he had no option and he just you could see there was just this hesitation and almost in a in a away just this defeated grab of the ropes like he could have got them earlier he was right beside them but then he just kind of puts his hand out and grabs them was like fuck you (laughs) i'll I'll, I'll take the rope break um but then the the brilliant thing is um takata then uses that opportunity to hit dragon suplex for the first time that gets a huge near fall and with koshinaka like really in trouble uh the next thing takata does is he drags him right into the middle of the ring and puts on the chicken wing and then in knowing that he is in the absolute worst position the position he wanted to avoid at all costs that is the moment where koshinaka says okay i'm in desperation mode fuck your hand and he just goes and pries that hand away from his chin. Um, and he just starts manipulating those fingers. Um, just goes to work on that hand, swatting away at it. Um, Takada, he just he does, doesn't let up on it at all for the rest of the match. And Takada is just trying to get it out of out of harm's way. He's just flailing his arm around to try and keep his hand away from Koshinaka. But Koshinaka is like a sniper. He is locked mm-hmm. in on this thing. And um, just the filthiest thing was uh, um, when he forces Koshinaka to do a rope break. And then Koshinaka, who would like, or sorry, he forces Takada to take a rope break. And when Takada, even though Takada is kind of more like, the heel here and Koshinaka is the valiant baby face when Takada like when the rope breaks happened for Koshinaka like Takada let the separation happen Koshinaka he's so desperate he doesn't he doesn't let this like the rope break happens and he immediately holds the hand and drops his knee on it right on the mm-hmm. middle bone of the hand drops his knee and um that was pretty much uh, the, the next thing he does is he gets on a, a Fujiwara armbar of his own um and but unlike Takada's Fujiwara armbars, he combines it with pulling back the hand and the fingers and Takada is forced to tap. And um, yeah, what a match. And you mentioned the bloody mouth. So the first time we see the bloody mouth is um, he uh, had been in the Fujiwara armbar face down after taking a bunch of strikes to the face, like kicks hard to the face, which were a big part of this this match. And Takada locks in the Fujiwara. And it's when Takada or when Koshinaka lifts his face up, you see all this blood underneath him, and you realize his mouth is just bleeding everywhere. And they go into a dueling leg lock spot where they start trading slaps on each other with mm-hmm. Koshinaka having this bloody mouth. He looked like 
the Joker with just the the big bloody smile um, with the the face painted Joker or whatever. Like that's that's what he looked like, and it was such an incredible visual. Um, yeah, I, I actually think that 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 spot with the dueling leg locks and the slaps. I think that was the the moment where you realized, right, Koshanak is not. He he's now full of pride here. He's not going to take um, losing this match. Like that was that was the moment. I think it's it, the flip switched for him. Yeah, um, he had he had the killer instinct that Takada yeah. didn't have. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um. So great match. Um. And uh, then we get um. We get a cut straight to um, backstage, and this was uh, again. Uh, I w- watched uh, some of the uh, TV episodes um, leading into this um, to get a feel for what was going on, and um, uh, they had really been building the episodes around Bam Bam, the tag matches he was in, um, where he would take out different guys, Anoki underlings, and stuff like that. But they would always have these uh, uh, inset promos that they would show with uh, Bam and Bigelow and his manager, uh, Larry Sharp. Um, pretty boy, Larry Sharp. and uh, Not the prettiest of boys, but uh, that was the 80s for you. Um, oh, by the way, um, speaking of guys who, who came in uh, for this tour, uh, I wanted to note um, the referee uh, for Takada versus... Um, Koshinaka was Jerry Morrow from Stampede, a name I have heard. He's been referenced on AW Dynamite with uh, Don Callis and Chris Jericho. I've heard the name Jerry Morrow for decades. I've never seen him before, um, but I was reading an old observer from um, uh, around this to see what kind of Dave was talking about with regard to what was going on with Bigelow going over, and he just threw in that uh, Jerry Morrow uh, was the referee on on this series so um yeah uh but um uh he he also uh dave did note as i have this pulled back up in front of me um uh, sharp did a great job managing at ringside um throughout the tour although fans probably couldn't understand his english taunts at enoki i was surprised they used sharp because i expected they'd have wakamatsu manage bigelow well clearly dave didn't know about uh, larry sharp's scheme to uh ride the coattails of bam bam bigelow uh, <laughs> around the world after trading him uh and get, getting his own bookings out of it, but also taking a percentage of Bam Bam's uh, bookings, yeah. which ultimately led to the, the split with those guys. But like, while yes, that was bullshit. Like, you can't say that Larry Sharp didn't like really go out of his way to try to get Bam Bam. He worked hard for Bam Bam. He, he, he absolutely added to the presentation of Bam Bam here because I don't think Bam Bam could have carried that on his own he needed a larry sharp there with him and uh yeah just very simple things in these inset promos like um uh there i think there's two on this show the first one is like enoki we're in your hometown da, 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 da. and then this one or, or so that was this one i think and then there was one later um between matches where he just it just shows bigelow and like all you need to do is just show bigelow on screen show the tattooed head show just his look and it's like it tells a story but they zoom out of bigelow and then larry sharp just goes bam bam bigelow think about it 
Enoki. <laughs> Ominous words. Uh, on the TV the week before, he actually had, had mentioned how um, uh, all the fans in Japan wanted to come and see what Bam Bam Bigelow was going to do to Enoki, and there wasn't a ticket to get, but he had purchased um, a bunch of tickets, and he was going to give them out to fans who... Um, who weren't able to uh, buy tickets themselves. So uh, um, we do see later that ah, he that's emerges. What, that's, that's what that clip was. Yep. We see him come out into the uh, the, the queue and start handing out tickets to, to people who are selling tickets. I'm sure he, he made a little profit on them for himself. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that. Was that. But uh, um, really cool presentation here, reminding us that like, at the start of the show, we see Bam Bam. At the end of the first match, we see Bam Bam. Um, reminding us constantly what our main thing here on this show is going to be later. But before that, we have our bridge match, um, which was, again, UWFI guys um, competing against uh, New Japan guys. You have Maeda and Fujiwara, so the big star of UWF, um, one of the two big stars with uh, Maeda, and then the elder statesman, um, which was uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara. And they took on um, New Japan legend um, Tatsumi Fujinami and rising star young Keiji Muto. And Lee, is this the earliest Muto you think you've ever seen, maybe? Yeah, I haven't seen any um, New Japan Young Boy Muto, or if I have, I've forgotten it, but this would definitely be, be the earliest Muto I've seen. Um, yeah, I, I, I was impressed with Muto in particular, but um, I don't, like, what did you think of this tag? Because, I don't know, I wasn't particularly blown away by it. It was the uh, New Japan 80s version of Danny Doring and Roadkill versus Chris <laughs> Chetty and Nova in that they were just spamming, spamming a load of stuff that was happening really quickly and not much of transition between things. But that would be, you would see that with a lot of 80s Japanese wrestling when it kind of emerged from the the like Dory Funk, early Jumbo era of kind of slower, longer matches to the Ricky Choshu. Uh, Choshu was kind of the main guy that brought in this faster paced style to, to, Jap- to heavyweight Japanese wrestling. It was already kind of there with the juniors, but to heavyweight Japanese wrestling. And that's why Choshu became such a star to like the 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 western hardcore newsletter fans of of the 80s because it was like oh this is like there wasn't wrestling like this this fast-paced heavyweight go 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 wrestling where there wasn't really a ton a ton of thought for um transitions and selling and cohesiveness it was just all-out action and that's kind of what you had here with this match it was disjointed but it was it was action packed, and the crowd was molten for it. Um, I, I thought I thought the crowd were hot for Maeda and Muto in particular, um, and not so much for Fujiwara, unfortunately. Um, I don't know. I I just I, I agree with you. There, there, there was a lot happened, but I I you know I not something I would go back and watch. 
No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't particular, particularly great. Like I wasn't, like I wasn't picking up on like uh, again. I watched it twice, but I wasn't picking up on any kind of like oh this coherent story or story yeah. thing. Like I was with the first match. So, um, but I, I will say I, I hated the finish. Um, oh, but eighties. 80s Japanese wrestling, 80s wrestling in general, you got a lot of bad finishes, particularly in Japan. But this was this was bad, both from a lazy booking of the finish, but also the execution, I don't think was good. So they basically threw the match out because um, I'm not sure if it's because Mudo and uh, Maeda went over the top rope or if it's because they went over the guardrail. But in both bumps, you have Mudo kind of dumping um, Maeda over the top rope and then kind of fakely following him out. Like there was no reason for Mudo to also fall over the top rope. He kind of just threw himself out and then he sold it more than Maeda when they landed. Yeah. And then they go to the guardrail and then they essentially do the exact same thing. Mudo knocks Maeda over the guardrail and then just kind of falls over it himself. Weekly after it's, him, yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's not like they had Maeda drag him over with them or anything like that. It was just and, kind and, of and just it's not like, jumped over. It's not it's not like they were outside the ring for a particularly long time, so it wasn't a count out either. No, it wasn't a it definitely wasn't a count out. I think it was it was a, it was a definitely a no contest. Um, uh, but yeah, I uh, didn't didn't like the execution of that finish. Um, no. Did you notice who was at ringside as they were getting back into the ring? Oh, I didn't. I actually, I I didn't. I I was looking, but I didn't note anybody that came to mind straight away for for any ringside attendance. This was before his uh, Kangol hat wearing days. This was uh, that you know him for Lee as part of the NWOB <laughs> team. This was a young Brian Adams, um, a New Japan young boy, Brian Adams, uh, part of the uh, the young boy, the the foreign young boy class of kind of. I don't know if they're all exactly there together, but of the era you had Brian Adams, uh, Max Payne, uh, Daryl Peterson, um, Man Mountain Rock, that guy. Um, and then on the junior side, Chris Benoit and uh, Two Cold Scorpio. So those were your your foreign talents training at the uh, at the New Japan Dojo in in this era. Um, so uh, yeah, nothing else really for me to say about that. We get another transition with Sharp and Bigelow, um, and then we get Bigelow and Oki, and quite the presentation here, Lee, as we see Bam Bam Bigelow, like Sumo Hall is just like going absolutely insane for these guys coming out in the main event. Bigelow is again, I will remind you, a rookie in his first year in pro wrestling here. His first tour of Japan, main eventing Sumo Hall with Anoki and this crowd are treating this guy like an absolute monster the likes of which they have never seen before. Anoki is Anoki star power, star reaction. He comes down to the ring, Bigelow, right from the right from the jump, just annihilates him, gorilla press to the floor, cartwheel in the ring, being full on Bam Bam Bigelow, 
Enoki is helped to the back as Bigelow just stands triumphant in the ring. And we have ourselves quite the scene to start this main event. Before we get into kind of what continues from there, Lee, your thoughts on the the uh, the, the initial uh, portion of our pre-match of this match? I, I think everything from the presentation, like pre, like the the inserts that we see throughout the show, to the beginning, the, like the very beginning of the show, as you pointed out, with the big bump and just like kind of preview and giving the, the teaser to like the monster music to Larry Sharp with like the, the platinum blonde Ric Flair style hair. And he very see, much looks like Playboy Buddy Rose. Yeah, you see this this insane caricature of a monster come out behind him with the, the flame, uh, flamed head. And he just goes about like destroying an Oki. Like he literally, as uh, the ring introduction is being made, charges him and then Gorilla Press slams him not once, but then the second time throws him out of the ring, which again, for a guy like an Oki to take that bump from a quite literal green monster who may not know his own strength is, you know, quite commendable, I think, for, from an Oki. But yeah, I, I just thought the whole presentation of the, the, of Bigelow as the new guy here is just brilliant. Just can't fault it at all. So Bigelow holds force in the ring. Larry Sharp gets on the mic, starts trash talking Anoki, who has gone backstage, dares him to come back out and square up to Bam Bam Bigelow, his monster. And we see Anoki backstage furious getting tended to and treated on for his injury. Um, it appears he's injured his right shoulder and he wants to go back to the ring and there's a oh, thousand people back there, doctors, rookie wrestlers, everyone um, trying to uh, talk him out of it. It's, it's pandemonium as we see the locker room scene here. Um, Anoki just bulls his way through all these people. He decides, I'm going back out there as they all chase after him. It's just tremendous. And then they, they cut back to the ring or you see Bigelow and Sharp still there. It's just all, it's just perfect. I just love this whole scene, this whole presentation. And I love Inoki as he's coming back to the ring. He's got his right arm that he's trying to like get feeling back in, circle it back into place or whatever. He's like treating his right arm. And with his left arm, he's, he's just pointing aggressively and at Sharp and Bigelow and talking trash and he's got one arm just he's like working out and the other is just pointing aggressively just like giving them a bollocking it's tremendous uh, as Inoki just looks furious and he gets back into the ring and then the visual I will have of this whole thing happens next Inoki steps into the ring Bigelow charges him Anoki backdrops Bigelow. He's waiting for him. He's ready for him this time. He backdrops Bigelow over the ropes. And Bam Bam Bigelow at, God, 300 and whatever pounds, maybe closing in on 400 pounds, in his first year as a wrestler, takes one of the greatest bumps I've ever seen to the floor. This guy went into the skies for this thing. It looked incredible and it put over like Inoki, it 
and but it wasn't even just the bump itself. It's when Bigelow lands, gets to his feet, and his selling in terms of how his face reacts to it. The instinct of this guy for body language, mannerisms, facial expressions. Um, he just got it. He mm-hmm. just got it. And you would see some of his weakness emerge as this match goes on. Um, that like I think he didn't really he had like a couple of really impressive things that he he did, but between them it was okay, I'm just gonna go into a chin lock. Chin lock, yeah. He, yeah. he hit that chin lock multiple times. But he did. Yeah, that that see, bump is just that that'll stay with me, that that bump in particular, because What's most impressive about it to me is the speed. There's the no speech, choppy yeah. steps. He he takes off like he's charging it, you know, uh, he, like he's a linebacker taking out a quarterback. He just, he's gone full steam. And like you said, the control of the bump as well is is just amazing for a guy so green. And yeah, to, to then hit all that and then get up and still sell perfectly. I mean, yeah, the, like you said, you got you said it perfectly. He just got it. He just understood. He had that intangible that you cannot give somebody. Well, the match wasn't particularly long after this point, maybe about ten minutes or so. Mm. Um, there was there was nothing that they could have done in the match to top how they uh, what they had given us up to this point before the match even pretty much started. And what they would do uh, to to end the match, which I thought everything towards the end of the match and the post match was all was all really good. Uh, the match itself was kind of just an afterthought. It was a lot of Bigelow's chin locks, Anoki selling, Anoki firing up, and eventually Anoki going and locking in his Manjigata May octopus stretch, um, going into like the grounded octopus, and Larry Sharp interfering from the floor. Good. Good placement um, in terms of where everyone needed to be for the finish. Um, Sharp uh, hits Anoki with something and then gets into the ring and just starts um, taking shots at Anoki. The match is thrown out. Uh, Bigelow gets on top rope, uh, hits a big splash to take Anoki out further and and stand tall. Oh, and a great touch. After the big splash, Larry Sharp counts to three for Bigelow, mm-hmm. which the visual pin. Yeah, yeah, the visual pin built for rematch. Um, and then we see that uh, e- even though, like, this is how it ends, we see, like, in the, the again, kind of like the uh, ECW show, you get kind of like a, a little... Um, Peek behind. Yeah, what's what's the term they use uh, um, with, like, the Marvel movies and stuff, like, where you get that little... Uh, oh, the cut, not, the, the cut scene, like the, the post-credit scene? Post-credit scene, yeah. You basically get a post-credit scene here where they show you that Inoki um, came back into the ring after and uh, he cleans house on Larry Sharp mm-hmm. and beats him up and kind of gets his heat back because they obviously needed an Inoki standing tall to cut a speech, I'm sure, at the end of the show. Um, uh, but we don't see that in the TV episode here. But they do show us enough to know that Inoki, uh, he, he did uh, he did. He didn't cower away completely. No, and, because uh, we had we had seen an Oki charge to the uh, the heel side of the building to chase after Bigelow, and it oh, was yes. his, his young boys that kind of dragged him away to the correct side. And it was very much the opposite of when he returned to the ring. He was trying to get back 
to the locker room and, you know, his charges were preventing him. That was um, it. Yeah, you're dead right. But yeah, no, I thought, I thought, like you said, the kind of post post credit scene was really good, and you can understand why they wanted to give the the crowd a kind of happier ending of Larry Sharp getting his ass kicked. And well built to rematch. If you were a mm-hmm. fan here in February uh, 1987 at Sumo Hall, Lee, if you had got your ticket from Larry Sharp outside the venue and you had gone in and seen all this unfold, would you have been uh, would you have been excited to to go see a rematch? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, like. I think for for the amount of limitations that Bigelow would have had at this point, I thought they the way they presented them covered them very, very well. And, you know, they had absolutely absolutely created a, a monster guys in here for, for an Oki to overcome. Yeah, it was uh really, really well done. Um Dave was really uh, in the observers tread this month, he was really like talking about how the reaction to Bigelow was super super strong like the Bigelow did a great job when he watched the match itself he he shared a lot of the similar thoughts that we had um on Bigelow and and the match um and uh yeah uh, I, I I think uh just uh, uh, like ultimately uh Bam Bam would split from Larry Sharp and uh he would make try to make his own way in Japan and well in the long run it did work out and he had a good career in, in Japan. And he certainly stumbled in his early days. There's the famous story of him working all Japan and counting his money in front of uh Giant Baba and never getting booked again because you don't do that in front of Giant Baba. Um but uh yeah, uh they um they came back and they did this match in uh in Cork and Hall, two months later, um, which I've never seen, uh, New Japan Blazing Cherry Blossom, 1987, day one at Cork and Hall. That's an awesome show name. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> they did it again in Aomori in the Summer Big Fight series in July, and they do it for the IWGP Heavyweight title for the first time in August. Um uh, at Sumo Hall, so and again, Inoki winning, um, beat him in in nine minutes. There, um, he he beats him in two minutes at Cork, and on the tenth of October '88. So that's I'm, a year later. I'm guessing that had to be like an angle an before angle, the yeah. match. Yeah, it, mu- it must have been. Um, they would have uh, they would have a couple more matches yeah their last singles match was um february uh 1989 um at the nakajima sports center in hokkaido so that's probably on new japan world i think they have all those hokkaido i'd I'd say new japan world would have it i was just gonna say i'd say it would have been on new japan but it's probably on the new new japan world exactly (laughs) uh the uh singles match opener 12 minutes on uh um that uh, uh, Korkin show with the, the two-minute match. The opener was Kensuke Sasaki versus Minoru Suzuki as uh, as young boys. Um, yeah, the Inoki Bam Bam. I clicked into this because I wanted to see like the, was there a tag match or something after two minutes. It was just they had two-minute match, and that's the last thing Cage Match has listed on on this show. Oh, so, okay, um, interesting. All right, well, Lee, uh, what was your uh, New Japan experience like overall from 1987 thumbs up. I I think it was a very coherent um episode of television. I like for an hour they got through so much like they they hit the three biggest show or three biggest matches on the show or on that kind of summer tour maybe 
or um spring tour um and yeah i thought they it was very well presented i think obviously we don't speak japanese but at least i don't so they had the commentators very similar to joey styles and joe and gertner do uh, a couple of on-screen shots where they explain things they sold they told you tour dates for the upcoming tour they they hit all those things you would expect from a tv show and i thought overall it was really well done the uh clips of the foreign wrestlers who'd be coming in for the next tour was the thing Mm -hmm. they they showed which was using using their relationships with the different territories and promoters to to use footage and stuff like that to to show those guys so that's really impressed and very like a, a breezy watch if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I I fully in agreement. So um, two shows that I really enjoyed uh, watching um, this month. So Lee, uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, thank you for your great pick and thank you for the, the great discussion we've had on both these shows and for more great discussions involving yourself and your compadre, Dave Ryan Four. Uh, <laughs> what can people do to check out what you guys got going on days and thunder days of thunder podcast the large man appears patreon let people know about what you guys have been doing lately because as you well know i am uh perpetually um living in the past with you guys <laughs> uh, you and between you guys in between the sheets I'll, I'll i'll always be like a certain amount in the past catching up through your shows so i don't know what you're doing right now but uh, that's for you to tell people. We are right on the eve of, um, we are in the fall of 1999. So we're coming up towards, um, not Halloween Havoc. What was the pay-per-view before Halloween Havoc? Oh God, I can't remember the name Road of the pay-per-view. Oh, oh no. Um, there was one between them. God, I can't remember the name of the pay-per-view we're about to do. But <laughs> the, the, the pay-per-view before. <laughs> fall Brawl. <laughs> Fall Brawl. That's the one. Um, yes, we're we, about don't, to do we fall... don't have fall over here. In our yeah, end. we're about to do Fall Brawl 1999. Um, so we are very much in the midst of the kind of pre-Vince Russo era of WCW where there's a lot going on and a lot you can talk about for not very good reasons. But yeah, <laughs> uh, we are on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network every second Monday or Tuesday. Now we've moved to the start of the week because... I don't know if you've noticed this, Alan, but there's a lot going on in wrestling and the end of the week tends to be very, very busy. So for ourselves, more than anything else, um, we've moved to the beginning of the week for posting shows. Um, and then we have patreon.com forward slash WCW Thunderpod or a large man We have our Patreon where we will do different series. Um, the week that's in it, we have just dropped a very special Sting in AEW retrospective as we approach Sting's retirement show this weekend. Um, so we covered Sting's entire, it was a, a fan-selected show, so we covered Sting's entire AEW run from debut right through until the tag title win with Darby Allen just a couple of weeks ago. Um, really fun show. And for just €5, Euro, you get that and our entire back catalogue where we have multiple series like Rehash of the Champions, where I lead Dave through all the Clash of the Champions shows. We have DOT at the Movies, where we cover different movies that are fan-selected. We have um, we also do our own solo shows where we cover different things. We have plenty over there. So, And like I say, just €5 Euro gets you full access to our entire catalogue. And because it is Sting's 
um, retirement this weekend, we like to do what we call the pre-pre-show for AEW pay-per-views. So this Sunday, we will be live one hour before AEW Revolution begins, or about an hour and a half, maybe. But we, we go into the, the pre-show a little bit. But um, we will go live on YouTube and have a nice little chat breaking down the card. We like oh, to that's a, that sounds like material to accompany my takeaway with. Yeah, well, we, like we know do, I'll be getting a takeaway. We like to do a little bit of snack chat, Alan, as well. As you may be aware, we, we do enjoy having our snacks with, with uh, pay-per-view watching. Um, so, yes, the more the merrier. Absolutely welcome to join us. Check out the VOW Discord where we will post the link. Um, and also, if you are looking for us on Twitter, at WCW Thunderpod, I do not post there anymore. Dave looks after all of that. We also have an Instagram account, I believe. Again, that's all Dave. Um, if you want to Lee, Lee was sick of dealing with the likes of Brian Clark on there. <laughs> if you want to deal with me uh, individually, the VOW Discord is where you'll find me. Um, but yeah, other than that, also this week, I believe the show will be dropping. I am on the most recent five star match game. Oh, covering, I, I covering knew that Steam's show was career. coming. I didn't know you were a part of it. So, uh, yeah, Joe, Mr. Gagney reached out. There's two people I will drop all things for. They are yourself and Mr. Gagney. I will always make time to try and record. Oh, geez, so that's, that's good company for me to be in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so definitely check that out. Joe is obviously the, the, the godfather of podcasting, and it's always a pleasure to be on his show, as it is here at the Progress Paradise. Good job not tipping your hand in terms of how that went, Lee, because I, I can't talk about five-star match game without completely showing whether I'm like feeling cocky and uh, happy with my performance or being bitter because of uh, uh, a loss. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, there hasn't been too many of them recently, though. I'm, I've been pretty much on fire the last few times I've been on five-star match yeah, well, game. But... We were on together, you recall. We were on the Bret Hart episodes. Yeah. I, mm. Did I destroy you? Uh, well, I was introduced as a returning champion, so I don't think so. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> See, I'm just, I'm just thinking of me uh, eating the lunch of uh, Mike Spears and Case Low and all those uh, year end shows we've done the last couple of years. Yeah. Maybe I've, maybe I've put that Brett show to the. Yeah, we, we, we won't talk about that. Alan. Back recesses yeah. of my mind, but uh, yeah, I absolutely uh, back Lee's plugs there. You've heard Dave and Lee both individually on this show, but I can tell you. Uh, it's not the same as hearing the two lads together because there's very few podcasters that I think have the chemistry that they do um, together. And I think that's uh, that certainly makes your podcast because God knows talking WCW Thunder, it ain't the content that makes the <laughs> podcast. It's the podcasters that make the content. And I think uh, <laughs> I think you guys might be the shining example of that with what your uh, with what your muse is. That That's a huge compliment. So thank you very much for that well Lee thank you very much everyone thank you for listening until next time this has been Progress Paradise this has been What's on the Telly bye everybody bye